You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. We will again be in 2 Corinthians. Let's, um, let's open in prayer. Lord, this morning we come to you needy as ever, knowing that the answers to our, our life's needs are in your word and in your son. And so this morning as we study your word, I pray that you would open our minds for your illumination, for the exact teaching that you have for each of us this morning. For only you can do that. You can make your word live, alive to each and every one of us in here in a way that speaks to our needs and to our desire to serve you. We also pray, Lord, for the firefighters this morning, for safety. As we see the smoke in the area, we know that there's a lot going on. We just ask you to um, mitigate this situation and bring in the weather that will help. And, Lord, we pray for... um, again this morning, that we would just uh, be ready to receive your word with joy, and thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, I believe it was, what is today? I'm, I'm, i got to find out where I'm at. Where am I? Oh, here I am. Last week we finished, we started chapter 4. And so we'll kind of revisit it to get started in chapter 4 again a bit, but uh, let's go ahead and read 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ." So when we started last week, we touched on the subject, the fact that each and every one of us is a minister of Christ. There's no special laity and clergy. There are those who God has placed as pastors and teachers, but every single one of us is a minister of Christ. And he has purposes that he reveals throughout the word of God for each of us to bring the gospel to the world and to bring to bear by obedience to to the Holy Spirit the word of God in our own lives so that we can be changed, as he talked about, from step from glory to glory, sanctified from step to step. As, we t- as I mentioned, it was like sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward. The progress seems plodding and slow. But all of us who are children of the Father can look back over our lives and see progress. And as you draw closer to the Lord... Don't you wish the progress was faster? Don't you wish you weren't as awful as you are? Or I should say I'm as awful as I am. As you compare yourself to the glory of the, of the Son, 
there isn't a comparison. It's it's ants to it's ants to Mount Everest, but but nevertheless, it spurs us on. So then he says, therefore, referring back to the previous chapter, verse three, which is an unfortunate. I often wonder why they break at the word therefore, because that means you have to think about what was therefore was before, but that's okay. Maybe it's a good prod to us to study Scripture more. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, do not lose heart. And so he reminds the Corinthians that they have a ministry, that they received mercy in order to work that ministry without losing heart, without losing courage. What ministry do they have? It's, it was the ministry of life and not death, the ministry of grace and not works, the ministry of the new covenant and not the old covenant, the ministry of the spirit, and not the letter, the ministry of blessing, and not of condemnation. And the ministry is sustained, propagated, and blessed because of the mercy of the sovereign Lord of the universe, who, who, on those whom he has tasked with spreading it. And uh, we talked about the fact that the word lose heart comes from a, a Greek word that means to lose courage, to behave like a coward, to run in the face of difficulty. That's another way of looking at it. And I see that, we've talked about this, I see that throughout the church at large, unfortunately, throughout this nation and throughout the world, when, they are, when, when ministers of the gospel are confronted with the difficult truths, well, you know, maybe it doesn't really say that. And, and I apologize for offending, for, for being involved with, you know, whatever that happened 500 years ago, which is just deflecting from the fact that the world is full of sin, and the only thing that addresses it is the gospel. And if we adulterate the gospel, then the world hasn't got a chance. It's that simple, really that simple. So he doesn't want us to adulterate it. We'll get to that. But he doesn't want, he says, don't behave like a coward. Don't lose heart. The ministry of the gospel takes courage. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be some trepidation, but it means that in the face of that trepidation, bolstered by the word of God, and the Spirit of God, the minister of the gospel, every one of us, walks forward. Walks forward. <laughs> For God, yes, when he brings those divine provident, providential occurrences, it's our responsibility and our joy, even. A privilege to do, to do as the word says, yes. And to bring the word of God to people, even, even those who don't want to hear it. Actually, most importantly, those who don't want to hear it in some cases. For God has not given us, Paul says in Timothy, a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. King James calls it a sound mind. Today, hearts are caving into the pressure of the world to compromise God's word. Po politically correct speech is the order of the day. The ministry that God has given to his children, his elect, is a difficult one and requires the mercy that he gives in providing the courage to carry that ministry out. <laughs> that ministry is, is a message that is not welcome in the world. Paul included the Corinthians in this statement, carefully using the pronoun we. I love the way he does that. He doesn't set himself above. He says, I came to you preaching Christ, not with lofty words of wisdom. I came to you, he says this in another place, preaching Christ and him crucified, preaching the resurrection. He's essentially saying we are in this together and the mercy from God on high gives us the courage we need to carry out his will. Verse 2 says, but, and now this is kind of a, <clears throat> an answer, if you will, a, uh, an answer inside of a statement 
to those who have been accusing him of some things. He says, but we have renounced the things of hidden, the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul may be here referencing the crafty, false accusations that the false apostles were making about him. It appears that they were claiming he was walking in a manner that concealed things and that he was changing the word of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. When men seek the praise of others, one of the things they do is they name drop or they information drop. They allege that they are privy to information that is necessary but, but that cannot be shared at this time. Well... I know some things, but uh, you're just not ready for them. That means I don't know anything is what it really means. Paul, on the other hand, did not walk in this crafty way. He did not adulterate the word of God. Now, the word adulterate comes from a Greek word, uh, dulu, that means to corrupt, to, but it actually means to ensnare. It's a bait and switch. It's a, it's a destructive word that means to, to do something that will have an undoing effect on people. It's not a very nice word. Um, it's to change, to make, to make something say something that it doesn't say or to incorrectly interpret something. The idea, like I said, is of bait and switch. It is either someone who says something and then changes the narrative in order to benefit themselves or it can mean someone who ensnares another for the distinct purpose of cor corrupting them to their way of thinking. I'm trying to get you to think the way I think. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to misuse this word so that you think like me, so that you do what I say. We want you to be Bereans. We want you to correct us when we're wrong. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a correct, that's not an appropriate use of the word of God. Um, it also refers to the idea of mingling gold or wine with inferior ingredients. This would corrupt the original. Remember in Haggai, when he questioned the priest, he said, now if you have a clean garment and you touch a dead body, did you just make that body clean? Well, no, we made our garment dirty. Correct. That's correct. And when we, when we mix anything in with the word of God, we corrupt it. We, we adulterate it. How much arsenic do you want to try in your glass of water? Or I remember... <laughs> No, I'm not going to tell you about that. You'd think I'm really weird. I was only nine, so, you know. But, uh, and somebody's going to come up afterward. What was it? Uh, well, I'll tell you. Somebody dared me. I used to have to wash dishes in stages because my mother had uh, sort of like a daycare, and she babysat, I think, 26,000 kids, it seemed like. And I think I ate in the third stage so that I could do the dishes for the first second, and then I don't remember. She had it all worked out for the older kids. At any rate, Someone dared me to drink some of the water that was in a cup that was in the sink. And it was gray and had stuff floating. And I went, sure. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, those of you that know me well can say, yeah, he'd do something like that. <laughs> anyway, it was really awful, but I tried not to show it. But the idea is here, that's what it is. It's a corrupting thing that makes what was, nor what was good for you bad for you. The word of God is not bad for you. But when people adulterate it, they misuse it, and they can damage you. So <clears throat> it may look the same, but it was intrinsically different, speaking of gold or wine, and therefore evil. When someone thinks they are getting a $20 gold piece, but they don't realize that it is a piece of brass that is plated over with a thin layer of gold, they are being taken advantage of by um, 
of these people being taken advantage of by an adulterated gold piece. There we go. Um, for interest, interestingly enough, inflation, this is a sidebar, is a result of doing that very thing, adulterating the monetary device that you are using in your exchanges. And so in the Roman world, during the first, second, through the sixth, fifth centuries, um, the kings, the, the Caesars, would actually shave the gold, the silver, the denarius, which was a day's wage, and adulterate it with copper or zinc or some other metal. So that by the time about uh, 500, 500 AD, there was hardly any silver left in the denarius. And what did that cause? Well, it caused wheat to skyrocket 500,000%. 500,000% in price. Nothing new in Venezuela. Doesn't, this isn't the first time this has happened. And so when you adulterate the word of God, it then becomes a misused piece of equipment that damages people. Not God's word, but the misuse of it, the adulteration of it. So these are the people, these are people who handle the word of God in a manner that will yield profit, adulation, and praise and fame for them. But it will not bless nor help those they are giving it to. Those that are giving it to them, I guess. They may claim that it will bless, but their clear purpose is to benefit themselves. And so we see modern day, especially televangelists, who, who prey on people to send them money so that they can have a $56 million airplane, so that they can pray, because you can't pray in a tube full of demons if you have to travel that way. Again, amazing. What's more amazing is the un unwitting folks who contribute to that. So, this is indeed nothing new under the sun. John MacArthur commented thus in his commentary in 2 Corinthians. He said, the false apostles were, in effect, first century marketing experts. They viewed the gospel as a product and themselves as salesmen. Part of selling the product, the gospel, was veiling its truth and sprucing it up by adding some mystery and magic. By tweaking the message, repackaging it to make it more popular and trendy. They hoped to better appeal to first century consumers. They would then succeed in making converts and money. Paul, Paul's straightforward, powerful presentation of the pure, unrated, unadulterated gospel frustrated and threatened them. It also exposed their secret lives of shame. It is no wonder then that they bitterly opposed Paul. So Paul himself remember, had a life of shame, just as those false apostles did. What was he doing prior to his conversion? He was killing people. He was, he was getting letters of, of um, commendation or extradition, I guess it would be, from the Sanhedrin and going into local areas and calling these people out and bringing them into the street and handing them over to Roman authorities and in some cases over to Jewish authorities. And they, these people were losing their lives. They were losing their jobs, losing their families. This was his life of shame. <laughs> he worked craftily. craftily. Well, he, he was a God-hating Pharisee, is what he was, before conversion. He worked craftily and with the assistance of evil men to take captive and kill Christians. These false apostles were spiritually killing people in the church of Corinth as well as elsewhere. Remember, he ch they chased him to Galatia. They chased him to, to uh, Colossae um, and, and here to Corinth. Not only did Paul renounce his hidden life of sin and shame as a Pharisee when he turned to the true God, but he also renounced any feeling of shame because of the offense that the gospel might bring. These are people that Paul denounced in chapter 2, verse 17. Let's look at that. He said, um, for we, he, 
Titus, Timothy, and the Corinthians, hopefully, are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God. We speak in Christ as in the sight of God. He wasn't peddling the word of God. He wasn't preaching it to make money. Now, it's one thing that a man be, be supported by the ministry of the gospel in a local church by agreement with that local church. It's another when someone comes in just to make money. And that's what these guys were doing. That's what they were doing. The word, he, he used the word peddle, the word of God. They would, of course, accuse Paul of adulterating the word of God because he did not preach the Mosaic law. This is a manner of stating that Christ is not enough. Today we have many who preach the same false gospel. They claim that Christ alone is not enough. They claim that the scripture alone is not sufficient. We must have psychology, experiences, science, so-called. And so Christians turn aside to myths and false teaching. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And there are plenty of myths prevalent within the Christian church today. I won't go into them. There, there are too many, and, and uh, it would be just 14,000 rabbit trails, and we'd never get through Second Corinthians. But someday, maybe, maybe we can call it rabbit trail Christianity. Sophistication will lure many to destruction. Biblical truth is what is needed. No additions, no subtractions. The scripture says what it says, and although sometimes it needs to be dug into to understand and compared with other scripture, it is clear in that it elevates the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. The sheep, that is true believers, will love that truth and seek it. The false unbelievers, that is the goats, will despise it and look for ways to adulterate it or to discount it altogether. Uh, clear preaching and teaching of God's word has a, ray, a way of reaching into and condemning or commending the conscience of man. Even those who have not heard nor acknowledged the gospel, when they hear clear presentation of God's word, they recognize, I believe that some of them recognize its veracity. They may not like it, but they will know to some degree that what they have heard is unlike anything else they have heard. And they will sometimes hate it all the more for that. So don't be surprised when we who have this ministry and are beginning to and trying to take this ministry into the world are opposed because people have to oppose it because it condemns their lifestyle. What are they doing in secret? They don't want that brought out into the open. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to be shamed. And so they will change whatever is necessary in God's word so that what they are doing is supported. And so we have the perversion of, unfortunately, things like, I mean, Name the, the Twinkie defense, for ones. Anybody ever heard of that, the Twinkie defense? A fella committed, I can't remember what the crimes were, but he claimed, he literally claimed that he had gone on a Twinkie binge and the sugar caused it. And it got the little appellation, the Twinkie defense. Well, it really wasn't me. It was, it was General Mills. And I'm going to sue them as a matter. No, he didn't do that. But homosexuality, you name any kind of sin, that men are doing, men and women are doing, and they will look for ways to justify it. And those who claim to be in the church will look for ways to justify it with Scripture. Even against the clear teaching of Scripture, they will adulterate the word. 
Any questions or comments about that? Yes. If the shepherd was persecuted, why should the sheep expect to get away from it? <laughs> Christ was persecuted, so we should expect it. And then Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. <laughs> Everybody says this. Well, there are two types of people. Well, there are three types of people. Well, there are five. I'm going to say it this morning. Well, there are two types of people in the world. And always have been two types of people. Those who are perishing and those who are not. Would you agree with that? I mean, I'm, I'm categorizing it for the purposes of this message this morning. But although it may seem obvious to the diligent student of the word, unbelievers do not go to heaven. Are there any questions about that? Not in here, but apparently there's a lot of folks, especially even in the Christian church, who think, well, where do they go? They must go to heaven. Well, they go to purgatory. No, they, that's a, and I've told you before, that's a town in Kansas, and no, they don't go there. They go to hell, and I don't like that. I don't want anyone to go to hell. And so I, I believe it is my responsibility, and yours, you should believe it's yours, to, to get the word of God out so that those who are his sheep will repent. Believers do not go to hell. They go to heaven. This seems simple, but the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing because they will not hear it. The gospel is as evident as the sun is on a cloudless day. If you do not see that sun, it's because you are blind or you have your eyes closed. Men love darkness and will not see the truth. The truth will expose their innermost sinfulness and they cannot have that happen. So, and so, unbelievers choose the dark. They choose the dark. They choose the day without the sun. Those whom God has given to his son are given the faith to believe, and so they do. The veil is a veil of their own making for unbelievers, and they will not let it down. Paul chose not to preach an adulterated, soft message appealing to sensibilities and hopefully overcoming resistance. He was not making, he was not a marketing expert. He was a preacher. And he is an example to us today. He did not change the straightforward preaching of sin, righteousness, and judgment in order to attract more people. He did not make his messages gentle in order to avoid making people uncomfortable, hoping that that would encourage them to listen more. He let the truth be its own marketing agent, if you will. He knew that God does not save on the basis of deeds of righteousness, but rather according to the mercy of his sovereign choice. Preaching skill was not the issue, although a preacher should study and aspire to be effective in communicating. The technique was and is not the question. The heart of the matter is the condition of the hearer. Only God can open the eyes of those who are blind. And so Paul and we preach and teach, and God delivers the message to those that he has chosen in a manner that will remove the veil. It removes the veil. Those who are perishing cannot and will not understand God, the truth of God's word because it is spiritually appraised and they are dead permanently in their sins. Now, do we know who those are? No, we don't. So then, therefore, what is our responsibility? To preach it, to counsel, to encourage. Now, and, and as I've said before, we all must, <coughs> through introspection, proper introspection, scriptural introspection, counsel from others, and training, learn how to minimize our own tendencies, if we have them, and many of us do, 
to be abrasive and difficult to listen to. Arrogant, smart aleck. Do you, are Christians immune from any of that? No, we're not. I wish we were. It would be so nice if when you got saved, little angel wings sprouted. And don't you hear a bell tinkle when that happens? But it doesn't. Grace to grace, glory to glory. Those sancti the sanctification of a, of a believer begins in earnest and starts to work through his life and her life and remove those kinds of things that are abrasive and unnecessary. But it's a time, it's a, it's a progress. And so we must be about the business of becoming the best effective communicators we can. But don't adulterate the message. Get rid of as many warts of our own as we can. But God's word has no warts. It has no warts. Right. The word may be offensive, but we're not supposed to be. <laughs> let, let people be offended by God and not by us, as much as possible. Nobody's perfect, except the, the one who walked the earth then. But at any rate, it's our responsibility to communicate the word of God. And he's chosen us to do that. We are his ministers. Any questions about that? Verse 4. In whose case... Let's, let's read verse 3 again. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They will never see, or they can't see, the, gospel, the, the glory of Christ. Working in cahoots, if you will, with the sin-darkened minds of unbelievers is the God of this world, Satan. He is the energy behind all of the systems of the world that conspire against God and against the gospel. The word, the word minds in this verse is a translation of a Greek word which refers to an individual's ability to think and to reason. The God of this world has blinded the, a person's ability to think and reason so that unbelieving, they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's... Um, those who, are not those who are not regenerate are unable to think properly about spiritual truth. Their minds are depraved and they love darkness. Now, we have nothing over them because we were there. Were we not? It's not like, well, he saved me and you're a jerk. No, we're all jerks together. And then God chooses. We need to be about the business of working, that, working within that. There is no question hermeneutically that this is referring to Satan, but it was interesting. I got into a study of this particular verse, and it was one that was the unhinging of many people in the early years of the church. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at that because it's some of the frequently asked questions that come up with this verse. Um, in the early years, a bishop of France named Hillary was dealing with the Arian heresy, which denied the deity of Christ and made him a creation of Jehovah. Unfortunately, this otherwise biblically sound early church father changed this verse so that the God of this world became Jehovah. So that in, who case, in whose case the God of this world, in whose case Yahweh, Jehovah, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So Chrysostom and Augustine followed him in their battles, and so did Ambrose to some degree, against the Manichaeans who taught the dualism idea that basically brings God down to the level so he's just kind of a combatant of Satan. They're almost equal. These are some of the things that the early church fathers were dealing with. 
Um, as Calvin said in his commentaries, all these great men had to do was repair back to Paul's simple meaning because the use of the word God, small g, to describe potentates was something scripture did occasionally. This in no way detracts from the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity and is fully God. This is what Calvin said in his commentary. He said, had those men, all those men, calmly read Paul's words, it would have never occurred to any one of them to twist them in this way into a forced meaning. But as they were harassed by their opponents, they were more concerned to refute them than to investigate Paul's meaning. But what occasion was there for this? For the subterfuge of the Arians was childish. That if the devil is called the God of this world, the name of God is applied to Christ, does not express, a, as applied to Christ, does not express a true, eternal, and exclusive divinity. So if the devil, he says, is called the God of this world, then perhaps the name of Christ, as applied, I, I got, does not express, the name of Christ, God applied to him does not express the true and exclusive divinity. For Paul says elsewhere, many are called gods, 1 Corinthians 8, 5. But David, on the other hand, sings forth, sings forth the gods of the nations are demons, Psalm 96, 5. When, therefore, the devil is called the god of the wicked on the ground of his having dominion over them and being worshipped by them in the place of God, what tendency has this to detract from the honor of Christ? And as to the Manichaeans, this appellation gives no more countenance to the Manichaeans than when he, the devil, is called the prince of this world in John 14, 30. Remember, John called the devil the prince of this world. Calvin finishes this way. He says, there is therefore no reason for being afraid to interpret this passage as referring to the devil, there being no danger in doing so. For should the Arians come forward and contend that Christ's divine essence is no more proved than proved from his having the appellation of God applied to him, then Satan's is proved from being applied to him. A cavil of this nature is easily refuted, for Christ is called God without any addition. Nay, he is called blessed forever, Romans 9, 5. He is said to be that God who was in the beginning before the creation of the world, John 1, 1 through 3. The devil, on the other hand, is called the God of this world in no other way than as Baal is called the God of those that worship him, or as the dog is called the God of Egypt. So what's the little bit of takeaway from this? Go back to the scripture. Men have good things to say. It's good to study and, and read commentaries. But go back to the scripture. What does the scripture say? And these, have you ever been in the middle of a disputation and, and you found yourself spouting something that you really couldn't support, but you thought it was true, but you wanted to win the argument or whatever? Stop. I find myself saying... You know, I'm going to have to study this more. You have a good point, but I, I need to look back into the scripture. Can you give me some time? That's okay. It's okay to say, my dad used to say, it's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. But I'll find out. Let me look into it. And uh, I, I suspect that in some cases, that's what happened with these men. They found themselves in a heated disputation, and they spouted something that they weren't at all sure of. Weren't at all sure of. And it became dogma. Oh, my. Be careful. Be careful. This particular verse even uses, uh, even the word translated image in this particular verse, by the way, means an exact representation. So Christ, where he says, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 
So Christ is an exact representation of God the Father. He is deity. He is the second person of the Trinity. So the image, image is the Greek word from which, where we get the word icon. It means the image of the Son of God into which true Christians are transformed is a likeness not only to the heavenly body, but also to the most holy and blessed state of mind which Christ, is, Christ possesses. It is the image of God, the exact representation, as it says in Hebrews. Any questions about that, that verse? Kind of got carried away into third century. It was like 360 A.D. is when this happened, when... Uh, the Arian argument began to reach its height and people answered it and some people, some people answered it in an improper way and created a dogma that persisted for a couple hundred years. Okay, verse 5. For we do not, and this is where we'll end, if, I think we'll end here. For we, Paul, Timothy, Titus, and hopefully the Corinthians and us, do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. The focus of a false teacher will always, or at least eventually, be on themselves. The focus of a genuine teacher-preacher of the gospel will be on the Lord himself and on the hearers, on those that are hearing, for their benefit, for their blessing, for their teaching, for their edification, for their building up, for their strengthening, for their growth. Humility is not a character quality of those who seek fame in any way. And yes, there is fame in being a preacher of the word. There are those in the world today who use that fame to nefarious ends. It is a position of responsibility and of some authority. And to misuse it, at least in my mind, is a sin beyond belief. Paul stayed away from speaking about. He stayed away from speaking about or recommending himself. The laser-like focus of his teaching was the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel and the word of God. He looked at himself as a bondservant. Now, what is a bondservant? There's uh, an interesting book. Um, I'll have to get the title, so I won't, I won't. I don't know. I'll look it up. I'll report back to you. But at any rate, there's a, an interesting book about this. I think it John MacArthur wrote. But the word bondservant is almost never translated properly, apparently, in, in the New Testament, some, some of the New Testament translations of the Bible. And interestingly enough, maybe I already said this, so I don't want to steal my own. If I don't, I'll give it to you later. So it comes from the Greek word doulos, and it means slave. One who was bought by a master, a lord who now owns him or her. This is someone in Roman society who can't own anything. They could never become a citizen of the empire. They had no rights. They could not give testimony in court. They could not even have, they could not even be defended in court. The master had life or death control over them. This is someone without any rights whatsoever. That's what this word means and which it, what it meant throughout Greek antiquity and on into the Roman era. Often this word is translated servant in our modern Bibles, but it never meant servant. What comes to mind when I hear that is a butler. Alfred. Alfred was paid. These people weren't paid. They were given room and board after they had tended to their master. It's not someone 
who has, is paid for his responsibilities. It's not a worker or a hired hand or someone who helps another. This is a term of ownership. And it has a stigma that apparently in the 16th century caused Calvin and Knox, when they were putting together the Geneva Bible, not to translate the word as slave. Now, slavery in their area had gone out of existence in the 1300s. They felt 300 years later that it still had too much stigma. Imagine the stigma it had in the first century in the Roman Empire, where there were over 12 million bond servants, bond slaves, excuse me, who were owned by their overlords. This is a word of abject service, and it is a description of the Christian with relationship to his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We would do well to remember this, that when we trusted Christ for salvation, he, having opened our minds to the truth as we progress through our Christian life and begin to understand more and more of what the proper relationship is between Lord and servant, we recognize that we are but bond slaves. Now, it's interesting how this word is used throughout the New Testament when it's translated correctly, if you will. And not that I'm setting myself over all the translators. I, I'm not sure why it was translated servant so many times, but sometimes it's really good just when a word's like this, to translate it just what it means. We're his slaves. He now owns us. Now it's a wonderful ownership, but he does own us. And when we finally go home to be with the Lord, he will meet us and say to us, well done thou good and faithful slave. Wrong translation again. Slave. And it will be the most loving time you have ever heard that word spoken in the history of your universe. Because you'll know exactly what it means and you will be delighted to be his slave. Delighted. Can't think of a better thing to be but a slave of Christ. Interestingly enough, in, interestingly enough in the King James, it's actually correctly translated there. Well done, thou good and faithful slave. I looked it up. Um, I was looking through different translations to see what this how this was translated in different ways. First, he made now, the, the fact is that the Lord Jesus Christ did something that with his slaves that was unprecedented. This, is, this was not done in Roman society or Greek society. First, he made them his friends. Then, he made them sons of God and joint heirs with him. Slaves didn't get made brothers and sisters and joint heirs in a family. Slaves were slaves. This is what Christ has done with us. This was always at the back of the minds who wrote the New Testament, those of those who wrote the New Testament. Or maybe it was at the forefront. I don't know. And so Paul starts the book of Philippians as a slave. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Bondservants of Christ Jesus. Slaves. James does not open his epistle. James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he says, James, a bondservant, slave of the Lord Jesus, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same word, doulos. Peter begins his epistle. Simon Peter, a bondservant, a slave, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude begins his epistle. Jude, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And John, the beloved apostle, the one who rested upon the breast of Jesus, breast of Jesus said this. He finished out the book of Revelation. He said this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, which God gave him to show his bond servants, his slaves, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, his slave, 
John. Now, this seems like an interesting way to end up a Sunday school lesson, you slaves. It's a good word. It's a fabulous word. Now, I don't want to detract from the misuse one human had over another human 250 years ago. That is not what I'm talking about. That isn't slavery. That's evil. This is the kind of slavery. Had those people 150 years ago been treated the way God, the way Jesus treats us, they'd st probably still be in that relationship. Oh, man, this is going to get me into a lot of trouble. If they were treated like brothers and sisters and joint heirs and friends, why would they want to walk away from that? Why would we want to walk away? Well, we can't walk away, but why would we even think about it? He's made us his friends. He's made us his joint heirs. But he is our master, and we are his slaves. It's a word that's charged with a lot of, of negative energy today, if you will. That's kind of a weird saying. I, found, I just got psychobabble, didn't I? You know what I mean in here. It's a word that has negative connotations. It shouldn't for us. We are slaves of the most loving master that ever existed in the history of the universe and before and after. And what does he do? He makes us his joint heirs. He makes us his friends. He tells us about what he's... You didn't tell your slave what you were going to do. Well, slave, I want you to do this and the other. And here's why. Here's what's going to happen. Remember what it says? Uh, I should have looked this verse up. I should have looked it up. But where the, the bond servant comes in and he fixes his... After working all days in the field, all day in the fields, and then he fixes his master dinner first and gets that all set up, and then he goes and fixes his own. And what does it say about him? He's an unprofitable servant. He only did what was required. I don't want us to be unprofitable bond servants. We want to not just do what is required. We want to go beyond and above. And so Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, yes, he has made us his friends. He's made us his joint heirs, but he is our master, and we are his slaves. He knew this, Paul knew this, and he knew it was important that he communicate it to the Corinthians. They weren't treating each other this way. They were suing one another. Remember back in 1 Corinthians. Now, a lot of that had, had been sorted out by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians. But he wanted to remind them that not only are we Christ's slaves, but he says to them, look at this verse. He says, we do not preach ourselves Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves, your bond slaves, your bond servants, for Jesus' sake. Do we look at ourselves as the servants of each other, for Jesus' sake, of the people in this room? I, um, I confess I don't think about it as much as I should. We need to be about the business of serving one another, the way Christ served us, and the way Paul served the Christian church. He was their slave for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Father, this word has powerful implications for us today as we recognize how misused it can be, how it can be adulterated, how the concept that you have given in your word can be twisted and blasted out of shape so that men use one another. But rather, you have created a blessed slaveness, if you will, that we can serve one another and be delighted in doing that. And Lord, let it be a, um, just a, a down payment, if you will, of our service to you.
that we are your slaves. We recognize that. We are glad about that. Thank you for your love for us and uh, for blessing us beyond belief with salvation for which we had no part, in which we had no part. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.